This program was made possible by an independent grant from Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, who provided financial support for the program. Okay, looks like we are good to go. So once again, hello and good afternoon, everyone. If it is afternoon where you are, good evening, where some of you might be. I'm Steve Simpson. I am the chess president for 2020 through 2021, and I'm one of your hosts here for the afternoon. Um, my co-host is Alice Gallo, Dr. Alice Gallo, uh, assistant professor at the McClellan in Rochester, and I'm really pleased to be able to introduce our several panelists here. And I'm going to begin with Dr. Flavia Machado, who is a professor of critical care in Sao Paulo at the Federal University of Sao Paulo, and is also the CEO of the Latin American Sepsis Institute. Uh, Flavia is one of the wonderful people that I've gotten to work with through the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. She is one of the world's leading experts in sepsis, and certainly Latin America's leading expert in sepsis, in my opinion. And Flavia, thank you for being with us. Um, our next guest is Dr. Mervyn Murr, who is a professor at the University of Pitt-Waterstrom in Johannesburg, South Africa, where it's 11 p.m., by the way, and we are very grateful. Mervyn is one of the kindest, most generous individuals I know, and his, his uh, positive attitude during this COVID winter that they are just now beginning to come out of uh, has been truly an inspiration to me as we are just about to go into our winter of COVID. So, Mervyn, thank you for being here. And then our last guest is Dr. Sai Haranath from Hyderabad, India, where I want to say, and I hope everyone will, will give kudos to Sai for being with us. It's 2 a.m. in India, and he has stayed up to be able to talk to us. Uh, Sai is a practicing intensivist and a practicing tele-intensivist as well. Um, he is the, the chair of Chess Global Co or Council of Global Governors and a member of the Board of Regents of Chess. So I appreciate having all three of you here. And I'm going to turn things over. No, let me say this before I turn over to Alice. Um, is that that you can ask questions and you can do that. I, I to do that chat and the Q&A during, uh, during the process, and we'll um, be able to ask your questions of our guests. So uh, thank you all very much for being with us. Um, I, I didn't introduce this just before I go to Alice, and, and the, the thing that we're interested in today is that Many of us who are members of Chess live in the United States and in other places where we have tremendous amounts of resources to throw at just about any problem that comes our way. We have certainly thrown resources at COVID-19 during the course of this global pandemic, whether we've done so uh, in the most astute of ways 
always is an open question, but we have thrown a lot of resources. Our guests here this afternoon come from countries that don't have the extreme numbers or amounts of resources that we have in the United States in terms of cash flow and that sort of thing. And so uh, we are hoping that we can learn some things from them that help us perhaps maybe be more parsimonious in how we approach the disease and still be effective at doing so. Alice, it's all yours. Thank you so much, Dr. Simpson. Thank you so much for our panel panelists for being here. We're super excited to talk to you today. So I'm gonna start with a question for all of you and, and you can choose the order you wanna answer. So the first question I, wanted, I want you guys to ask us, to answer to us is, to tell us about your hospital, where you work, and what kind of patients you see. Um, patients are insured, uninsured, um, and how, how does that compare to the average in your country? Yeah, uh, I can start. Uh, I work uh, in the Federal University in uh, Sao Paulo, which is the biggest city in Latin America. 20 million people living together. And uh, we are a quaternary hospital, one of the top university hospitals in Brazil, but totally public. Uh, and uh, uh, we, during the pandemic, we went for, uh, we almost more than double our ICU beds. I'm an intensivist. And uh, I think that in, in Brazil, there are certainly two health, completely different health systems, which is the public one, which I serve, and uh, the private one. And uh, we have differences regarding the pandemics uh, in these two scenarios, uh, not only uh, availability of ICU beds, but also resource and access to resource when they are limited. So it's a, a quite interesting scenario. Uh, I'll perhaps come in. Um, I'm based in Johannesburg in, in South Africa. Uh, I work at a place called the Charlotte Makeke Johannesburg Academic Hospital, uh, which was originally built as a 2,000-bed hospital. Um, we often are not able to run at full capacity because of the resource limitations. And just to give one a background of the entity, South Africa is a country of around about 60 million people. And uh, talking critical care and intensive care this evening, uh, we have only for the 60 million people, around about 70 to 80 people who've been trained in intensive care. And in terms of those actually functionally practicing full-time intensive care, probably between 35 and 45. So we are looking at managing 60 million people with around about 40 intensive care specialists. My own unit uh, in Johannesburg um, just allows us to see the most amazing pathology that you can ever imagine. If you love medicine, this is where you need to be. So everything that you could ever imagine and, and had learned about from every infectious disease, malaria, tuberculosis, uh, even uh, African trypanosomiasis to conventional community acquired pneumonias uh, to all forms of, of sepsis. And our unit is multidisciplinary. So we see obstetric disasters. Uh, we see complex medical cases. We see surgical cases. We actually do do transplantation, particularly kidneys, because it is cheaper to manage a patient than have them on a chronic dialysis program. And we have the, the benefit of a mix 
of uh, some really sophisticated care together with very, very resource, significant resource limitation. Uh, in fact, the university, um, proud to say, has just been ranked within the top 100 in clinical medicine in the world uh, out of 25,000 universities. And um, uh, we've, we've had two Nobel Prize winners in the last 25 years in, in medicine uh, from, from this university. So uh, I feel very proud to have the privilege of working here. And um, very similarly to Brazil, uh, South Africa has a two-tiered system. And the vast bulk of the 60 million people, 84%, are reliant on state health care. And in fact, 16% uh, have private insurance and have access to uh, private care, um, which offers a spectrum of care very similar to that that may be found in a high-income country. Uh, what's very interesting to put into perspective where I work, 55% of South Africans live on under $2 per day. So that is a real reality. Um, most people live in um, dwellings that might house uh, 10 or 12 people, often in a single room. And uh, transportation, very limited public transportation. People rely on minibus taxis, and this is relevant when we're talking about COVID, uh, because a minibus taxi often geared to carry uh, 10 people might on any day have 25 people. Uh, in, in the vehicle. And so this had major implication and concern when the issues of COVID started arising. And uh, despite that, as we may discuss later on, um, uh, we were at one point in time the fifth most um, afflicted country in the world. And that obviously was a gross underestimation because testing didn't nearly reflect the enormity of the problem. Uh, but yet we have amongst the lowest mortality in the world. And there may be many reasons for that, which I think is, is fascinating. And so we had a massive, massive problem on our hands uh, outside of the intensive care community that I mentioned, critical care services for the 60 million people and the people who are reliant on state care. Uh, we have about, at the last national audit, 4,500 intensive care stroke high care beds for the whole country, but the vast bulk of those are in the private sector. So in the sector in which I work, uh, we have about 1,100 beds for 84% of 60 million people. And so we had a massive task on our hands to try and expand capacity and maximize what we really could do. And uh, before allowing others to have, to have an opportunity, we in fact, um, at a point in time in my own hospital, uh, we had around about 450 inpatients at any one time with a packed ICU that had been expanded. And if there's an opportunity, I'll share with, uh, with you all how we were able to actually do that, uh, what we did do, and uh, perhaps why some of the outcomes um, were possibly uh, favorable. And we're just looking at our results currently, which um, based on the cumulative shared data that was recently published, looking at ARDS and, and outcomes, surprisingly in a, in, in a resource limited setting, uh, look as if they may be somewhat better than elsewhere in this very resource limited setting. So uh, that I think is, is sufficient um, uh, at the outset and just gracious thanks. And I'd also like to take this opportunity just to extend 
Um, absolute homage to all those champion healthcare workers out there around the globe. Uh, in the US, anyone who's tuned in just for the amazing work, the commitment, uh, and the incredible dedication. I think that for all of us, it's been such a privilege. Thank you. Thank you, Mervyn and uh, Flavia for this uh, beautiful uh, commentary on, I'm just gonna say ditto. We have a very similar system in India uh, where 80% of care actually is private, uh, where people self-fund their healthcare, but it's a country of 1.2 billion people. So there's a, a lot of patients. However, the, there's only about 70,000 ICU beds in the country. Uh, this is some little recent data, and there's about 5 million admissions a year on a good year where there's no COVID. Uh, we all recognize there's about you know, 800,000 people die every year from mosquito-borne illnesses, but those haven't gone away. So COVID came on top of everything else. Uh, I work at Apollo Hospitals, which is a private health system, which has hospitals around the country, about 10,000 beds, and uh, they're a network that is in uh, pretty much every corner of India. Uh, I have, uh, for the purpose of the webinar, kind of have a chat with my friends who work in the public health system too. So a little bit of information on what was going on there. And the good thing with COVID was that there was a lot of cooperation between all the health systems. There was a lot of back and forth in terms of knowledge exchange, as well as exchange of resources between the private and the public systems. Uh, my hospital has a very progressive leadership where we very quickly started using technology to prevent unnecessary admissions. So a large proportion of our patients were taken care of at home. So we used remote technology to monitor patients at home and uh, take care of them as much as possible to avoid unnecessary people coming in, where people who got worse got admitted though. Uh, we are a quaternary health system, you know, doing everything, but at the same time, we do recognize that there are patients who Know, cannot get into our kinds of systems. So we actually reached out and started assisting public health systems for their critical care needs. Uh, I also do tele-ICU. So we monitor critically ill patients uh, with ARDS and sepsis on ventilators around India. And uh, we kind of help that also. Most recently, we partnered with a public sector company, which has a very remote hospitals who are seeing patients who are directing their COVID care. So through remote COVID care, we have managed over a thousand patients, both in our system and outside. But within our own system, we've been seeing several hundred thousand patients in all the hospitals put together. Uh, overall, we've, you know, the, the story has been similar. It's been about a lot of confusion initially, followed by some clarity. Uh, and I think a lot of compassion and a lot of coordination and communication. Those are my five C's for Corona, where all of these have played a big role in terms of determining how the care progresses. Now, one thing which has struck me has been that our mortality rates have been low. When people are sick, yes, many of them die, but our mortality rates in general have been low. And my only premise for that is one, I think there's a lack of extreme obesity and perhaps a lack of comorbidity to the extent that is seen in uh, developed countries. Uh, we don't have 80-year-olds with end-stage renal disease with a transplant ending up with COVID. It's not that common. So maybe that's why our numbers are better. Uh, overall, though, as Mervin and Flavia have alluded to, 
resource crunches are there, but we've been very fortunate that it's been pretty organized. Uh, the government of India has uh, a very good website, which has been coming out with guidelines. Within weeks of the pandemic, we actually had a thousand person Zoom webinar on how to manage a ventilator. Uh, our own hospital, uh, and I'm one of the people who helped with this, is to we set up a ventilator training course for doctors around India, and about 20,000 doctors have been trained through an online course for these are basic uh, uh, medical doctors who don't have intensive care training. So I think what we've realized with COVID is uh, we really need to combine our expertise of intensive care and move it downstream to people who are at the front line who don't have an official degree in critical care, because ultimately it's the frontline worker who's going to be saving that life in the first one hour, whether it's sepsis or COVID or ARDS. Sai, you can say that your team did a really good job taking care of this patients. It's okay, it's okay, <laughs> it's okay, okay. to say that. It's okay yeah. to say that. There, there is a question from the audience of, of what do you mean when you say low mortality? Like, like in terms of percentages or, or any way you want to state it, they, they are curious about that. Yeah, so it was, it was like, I think like six people died from, uh, which were unexpected, where it was a younger person. But I would say about 36 people passed away out of these 1,000 or so who were very sick. Uh, we don't have exact numbers, we're still counting, but that's the approximate range in which I would say the numbers are. Overall in India too, the mortality rates have been low in general. May I, uh, may, may, may I uh, give a comment on that? Please. Uh, yes, uh, in Brazil we have a system, uh, a uh, quality indicator system called EPIMAN, which is, uh, has a prog program together with the um, uh, Critical Care Brazilian Society. So we are counting this, and the Brazilian mortality rates are quite high. Uh, we are this system. They monitor 16,000 16, ICU beds in both private and public systems, and uh, we usually say that uh, to talk about mortality, we need to have the same denominator, which means patients under mechanical ventilation. Because as I said, private and public system are quite different. So the, the severity of illness in private system is lower. So we cannot compare mortality rates in public and private units, but you can compare mortality rates for patients under mechanical ventilation or that uh, receive the renal replacement therapy. So we already have uh, numbers on this system for 60,000 uh, ICU patients in Brazil. Uh, uh, about 20,000 20, is from public hospitals. And the mortality rate for patients under mechanical ventilation is 68% in the public system and 61% in private system. And if the patients go uh, under renal replacement therapy, the mortality rate is even higher. It can reach 75% in public hospitals. So what we're discussing is why this Brazilian mortality rate is so high in intensive care units. And uh, of course, we have some uh, some states where we run out of ICU beds, but for instance, in Sao Paulo, it didn't happen. It happened on the north, on the northeast, the poorest regions, but not in the south, in the southeast. So uh, I think that um, we, we need to be very careful when we talk about uh, mortality rates and use a, uh, a standardized denominator, which might be patients under mechanical ventilation. And uh, 
since you are since you are talking about um, these differences in this in the tiers of systems, um, would you mind telling us how are these challenges? How are this? How are these tiers different w- during COVID and before? And um, just for us to understand the differences before the pandemic and then after the pandemic hit. I think the difference in the systems are pretty much the same before and after. They were just uh, uh, worse. But the difference, I mean, between private and public are mainly availability of ICU beds. So what became after a COVID uh, is that first we have a very stressed, uh, we had a lot of stress with non-COVID patients because the COVID patients were prioritized. And uh, it was, there was some time there where it was easy, not easy, but much easier to get a COVID bed in an ICU than a non-COVID bed. So first is uh, the admission criteria, for instance, uh, in a private uh, ICU uh, in Brazil, it can be use oxygen. And in a public system, it will be being on uh, a need for uh, a non-invasive ventilation or high flow oxygen or need for more than 10 liters of oxygen uh, in a mask, a non-rebreathing mask. So the differences in criteria are quite different. And access to resource, I don't think that we have, uh, uh, we are very, we're pretty similar to India and South Africa. Yeah, but... uh, uh, we, we have access to everything, but uh, during the pandemic, we had a lot of shortage. And it was not only uh, not having money to buy things, but the, the market went out of a lot of medications. And sometimes uh, the companies, they prefer to sell to private hospitals because they are better clients than us, than public hospitals. So uh, we could see this a lot during the pandemic. And this was different from before. I haven't seen this uh, before. So if, if I could just share the South African experience and, and follow on what uh, uh, Flavia, in fact, has said, um, she's absolutely spot on. How do you formally determine what true mortalities are? So if we look at the, the numbers that are out there in, in my own country, uh, we've had around about 750,000 cases with a mortality overall of a, a recorded of about 19,000. Uh, so we, we're looking at just over 2% overall uh, mortalities. If we take what Flavia referred to, if I look at um, our fairly moderate uh, large experience in the ICU and patients who landed up there on mechanical ventilation um, and going through our learning curve, and that includes some people who arrived as DOAs, dead on arrival. We included everyone. We didn't exclude any of the um, uh, patients who were, were not alive when they actually arrived. Uh, we're looking about 40 to 45% mortalities um, based on our current data and probably lower uh, right now. So it's very interesting, and there may, may be reasons for that. The average age in South Africa, across the spectrum is 27. Uh, we do have older people. There are lots of comorbidities. We're the world's leaders, unfortunately, in HIV. Uh, we have the biggest HIV population in the world. Hypertension, even amongst young people, is absolutely prevalent. And so we lo- see a lot of end-stage renal disease 
uh, as a consequence. There's an absolute explosion of diabetes. We see things like chronic hepatitis B in the context, and despite all of these issues, and we saw that entire spectrum of patients, um, uh, the mortality still remained somewhat low. Uh, and that is even with not having an a, a ambulance service that people can get to. Getting to the hospital is a major problem. It could take hours and sometimes days. You have to come to the, to the hospital. So, you know, there are many issues that need to be teased through to try and actually determine what some of these elements are. Um, and one of the things that I've, I've always um, tried to, to install is do the simple things well. I think that's one of the most paramount issues. And in fact, we learned that way back a couple of hundred years ago from Leonardo da Vinci, who actually said, you know, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. It is. If you do the simple things well in medicine, most of the time you're going to get it right. And, um, you know, there were many, many uh, important lessons. Um, we perhaps had the benefit, as opposed to many other countries, uh, of the gift of time. So uh, for us, we had three, four months to try and prepare adequately. And as soon as we started hearing things were happening in China, we in fact got a group together, literally uh, within a couple of weeks of that, because there was this sense that something significant was going to happen. Um, we also had the benefit in, in my country and geographic domain of being a referral center for viral hemorrhagic fevers. So we've had experience with Ebola. I see several Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fevers. We see Marburg virus disease, Lujo disease, um, and various others every year. And so we were fairly au fait with the um, potential contagious sort of, uh, you know, elements that were going on. And so we called our first meeting within weeks with all the relevant role players across the, the relevant domains. We actually drew up our first protocol at the at the end of that meeting, that was moderated and adopted and as we went along and learnt, and in fact utilised widely. And one of the things we had in our protocol, and I know it doesn't gel with all of us as clinician scientists always, but we in fact has a, had as part of our protocol corticosteroids. And you might wonder why. And um, uh, this is an, uh, a CHEST um, webinar. And several years ago in CHEST, there was a paper looking at corticosteroids and varicella pneumonia. Severe varicella, life-threatening varicella pneumonia in immunocompetent individuals. And um, I think many of us would be aware that the older literature suggested if you landed up on a mechanical ventilator, or had severe respiratory failure, the, the quoted mortalities at that point in time were greater than 50%. And remember, the potential modalities of infection are not too dissimilar. So we'd had a lot of experience. In fact, the varicella work came from us and was published in CHEST, <laughs> uh, interestingly enough. Um, and so uh, with an interest in steroids and things like tuberculosis and um, and in septic shock, we've been also using corticosteroids uh, in the setting of severe bacterial community-acquired pneumonias and took quite a lot of flack um, and then was shown to, to be correct <laughs> in the context. Uh, we use steroids up front at almost identically the same dose as the recovery trial three months before. And so when colleagues elsewhere in the country were saying, but our mortalities are 80, 90%, we were saying, but 
we, we're not seeing the same. So perhaps that was one of the issues um, right up front. But um, it's, it's quite a nice story from a historical perspective, uh, just going back and with this being a, a chest uh, webinar, um, having a link you know, with, with, with um, a chest right, right, right um, back to the, the late 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, um, from, from there, you know, many, many things, in fact, emanated. I'll give the others a chance and perhaps share how we, how we learned elements along the way and progressed um, in, in resource limitation uh, to even in a very resource limited setting, mechanical ventilation with some fancy modes that we think may, may in fact, have made some difference. But I can only say think because uh, at this point in time, all of that needs to be analyzed and it's not randomized data. So one of the things we realized quickly was that uh, awake proning was going to help us extend the, the reach of our oxygen in our machines. So we were kind of using that fairly extensively. Uh, in India, as perhaps in, as in Brazil, perhaps, there's uh, not so much regulation of what doctors can prescribe they can prescribe what they want. So a lot of doctors in the community were already doing their own experiments with steroids and ivermectin and HCQ, et cetera. So, and a lot of this information gets filtered back into the medical community through the chat groups and WhatsApp, et cetera. So there's multiple medical uh, uh, discussion groups going on. So, and, 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 and on a national and international level, there was a lot of interchange of information. And I think steroids kind of ended up uh, being the uh, ultimate savior, at least from what many people think is uh, what stood the test of time so far. But of course, there's you know, pluses and minuses, and you always have to balance the research that's coming out and the practice that works in front of your eyes. There are still people who say, you know what, I don't care what the studies show, I'm just gonna do this. So that kind of practice has carried on quite a bit. And uh, one of the good things that's come out of the whole pandemic, I think, is that people are talking science. Uh, at this point, so they're actually open to discussing these things. There's the concepts of critical care have come out to the forefront. You know, people are checking their saturations at home. So there's a lot of good things which have happened, which I think will stick. And despite what Corona does to us in many other ways, I believe that uh, we have actually benefited. For India especially, I think masks might actually decrease TB. I'm not sure, maybe we'll end up with less TB. Uh, mm -hmm. just because people are wearing masks and not spitting around. So I think those are some good things that have come out. We noticed that, I mean, I think that's similar to what Mervyn mentioned, we very quickly organized uh, our, uh, you know, we real, literally within uh, two days, we had set up a complete separate COVID unit uh, because we're a private hospital. And as Flavia mentioned, yes, we have the resources and vendors want to come help us. So we were able to set up an entire uh, repurpose the rehab hospital we have on our campus into a COVID unit. And that allowed us to actually carry on our regular operations and the COVID operations independent because at that time we really didn't know what was the infectivity. We were still trying to get the PPE. Uh, we're trying to figure out you know, what do we do in terms of uh, the safe infection control practices? How do we dispose of things? And the government was putting up new regulations and new rules and there was you know, the lockdown in effect. So, so a lot, everything was in short supply uh, and it was, you had to kind of have workarounds and it helped that we were already fairly organized as a network and had a little bit of uh, 
reach because of our private uh, system, it was a little easy to, easier to do things. Uh, I know that my colleagues in the government system look, took a little time to organize, but I know one of my colleagues uh, where, where I trained in Chennai, they took care of like 12,000 patients uh, you know, and did a pretty good job. Uh, you know, people never counted statistics on a very regular basis in healthcare unless you're in a very organized system. But now people are starting to do that too because these numbers matter and it, it ties up to resources. Uh, I know the government of India set up uh, a bunch of uh, a committees to look at ventilator procurement, uh, trying to shortlist which are the ones because they were looking at a national scale. And as you know, it's a big country, so they needed to import in hundreds of thousands of machines. And uh, so, so those things happened. And very quickly, there was a partnership between the government of India as well as many private players to kind of come up with a solution because uh, we needed to very quickly ramp up. So I'm pretty impressed with how the machinery worked. I mean, you know, we know that systems are large and they're slow and sometimes obsolete, but it kind of worked. So I'm actually fairly optimistic that COVID kicked us into the next level of healthcare, despite all the other things which are going on. Uh, fascinating. Um, we have a question from the audience that that is very interesting, which is how do you balance? So just because there's a lot of COVID coming in your doors doesn't mean there's a lot of nothing else coming in your doors. Um, and I know, for example, in the U.S., many hospitals stopped doing elective surgeries and and uh, that was a big problem and they started losing a lot of money. Flavia, what? how, how did you balance this in, in Sao Paulo? Well, uh, I think that now we are getting back to the balance and uh, we lose it completely, as I said. We were prioritizing COVID patients and I think that uh, in average, we did this uh, too much. Uh, uh, and not only talking about ICU beds and hospital things, but also the basic healthcare. So these patients were not going to their outpatient clinics. The patients with cancer had uh, surgery postponed. Patients with uh, cancer had their chemotherapy postponed. And uh, what we are seeing now, I think we are paying the price now because now that we are back, uh, for just giving numbers, we are now, we had six units uh, in, the, in, the, in the pandemic. Now I still have four units. One of them, one quarter of our beds are COVID patients and three quarters of our beds are, are non-COVID patients. And what we are seeing now is the severity of illness of these non-COVID patients for us sounds much, much worse than our previous non-COVID patients. Like they were not taking care, we were not taking care of their health during the pandemic. Yeah. So I think we lose completely the, ba the balance and, uh, and maybe it was needed because the learning, the learning curve is important. I agree with that. And uh, the learning curve is important regardless of the fact that we are prepared. I mean, we also had time to prepare in Brazil because uh, we, we knew that it will come. Yeah. But uh, there is no preparedness uh, to take that could handle COVID. The fact yeah. is there is there is no enough preparedness. We prepare ourselves and we are on continuous preparedness, learning with our mistakes, uh, knowing how uh, to uh, prioritize the patient. So it's a, it's a continuous process. Mm -hmm. And uh, the non-COVID patients, they suffer a lot. Yeah. 
What about other critical illnesses? For example, do were you seeing less sepsis during the winter of the more usual types than than COVID? No, I actually I I, I was uh, uh, aiming to comment how sepsis, bacterial sepsis, is much worse now, and I believe that our mortality rates are so high because we are having bacterial sepsis in uh, mm -hmm. uh, 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 on top of the COVID sepsis. So yeah. our patients mm -hmm. are not dying from uh, our patients are not dying from hypoxemia. Uh, we we received more than 500 patients in our unit, COVID patients, and 72% of them, do, of those who died, die from refractory septic shock. Yeah, yeah. They have wow. multiple organ failure. So and this maybe it's also because in our countries, in middle-income countries. We have a lot of problems with multi-drug resistance and healthcare-associated infection. And uh, with the COVID, uh, we, lose, we lose control of this because all the, the, the stewardship people and the infection control people, they were focused on the track, on the COVID and how to settle the COVID track. And we lose a little bit control of uh, the basic things like mm. using gloves because mm. we're already using gloves. So I think that the hand hygiene went so low because the healthcare professionals, they were feeling safe because they are protected. Yeah. And they sometimes protect, forgot to protect the patient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Claudia, if I may ask Steve, uh, what's the age range of the patients that you were seeing in Brazil uh, who were getting sick? In the ICU, the mean age is uh, uh, it's around 60. Six zero. Six zero, yes. Okay. How about you, Sai? So ours were about the same. The, the older, but they were, we never had that many 80, 90 years old because they, they're not there. But uh, ours are 60 to 70. The younger mm. ones, the occasional healthy, fit person would get very sick. Uh, mm. And I don't know yet why. I mean, one of our colleagues actually got very sick with a lot of scarring in the lung. and. And I'm not sure why. And uh, it wasn't an exposure thing. I think I think it was an immune response thing. And, and I think we're still learning more about that. Uh, and I, I do pulmonology too. So I'm seeing a fair amount of post-COVID fibrosis. And again, you know, we're using steroids and there are people using antifibrotics. There's no data yet. But, but I think it's a massive pandemic universal experiment. Everybody's got the same exposure now. We're going to see what happens to everybody else. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. How about in your ICU, Marvin? Um, uh, we, we had an age spectrum. So uh, effectively, uh, anything from, from late 20s, landing up in the ICU, um, to mid-60s. Uh, that was the spectrum. The mortalities were largely seen over the age of 40 uh, in, in those, and, and often just relentless. I think one of the, the really relevant things that, that I found in this context, and you know, all of us have, have dealt with this massive challenge. I think Flavia mentioned very eloquently, it doesn't matter where you were or how uh, well-resourced you are, you could never be adequately prepared for this. Yeah. It's as simple as that. But one of the important things with all challenges is that they bring with them opportunity. And I think that is the biggest issue. And recognizing that, I mean, we were engaged uh, as, as everyone, whether you're in a, a resource-limited setting or in a high-income setting, uh, to say, how are we going to manage these patients adequately? And I remember thinking 
quite significantly about it. I, I, I think we may even have chatted about it, Steve, on one of our um, uh, surviving sepsis uh, calls. And I, I remember uh, thinking, where we have limited facilities and human resources, surely the optimal thing to do is to maximize in-house capacity. And so uh, I, I was uh, approached initially to say, well, look, can, can we open a field ICU? Um, and I said, but we've only got around about 35 to 45 practicing intensivists in the whole country. Who's going to man that? Let's rather maximize what we have in-house um, and, and then try and maintain that beyond mm -hmm. COVID because that would, in fact, impact on the lives of thousands of people and, in fact, change the dynamic. And we were able to do that with some social responsibility partners. And, in fact, within weeks, we had uh, trebled, maybe quadrupled our ICU capacity, could accommodate virtually every single patient that, that required intensive care. Um, we started a nursing upskill program. We have challenges, including with oxygen. We sorted all that out. Some days in South Africa, you have rolling blackouts, so you're reliant on oxygen cylinders. Uh, we managed all of those things. That's where the preparation uh, came in. Uh, we um, really, there was a huge amount of fear, panic, and anxiety. We had debriefing sessions, and in fact, I prefer to call them communication sessions. So not really debriefing every morning and every night. Um, with all the staff where everyone had a voice. It wasn't, you will be doing this. Everyone had a voice. All sorts of queries and problems were resolved then and there so that any decisive decisions were very easy to roll out. And um, the nursing upskill program, we, we, we in fact had a two-week program where we involved various people and ran things similar to a basic nursing, basic nursing ICU uh, course. We, we had people from old-aged homes, um, from community centres who were put into the ICU and who were also supervised on, on the job and who, I can tell you now, are, are excellent in the ICU. And so we were told, you know, you guys have to do more with less. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful notion, provided you don't do less for more, mm. which we soon recognised. Don't stretch it too much. You've got to stop things there. And so when that was recognized, um, you know, the rest really happened. We had absolute buy-in. In fact, we had people who were wanting to run away from this who were volunteering after these debrief sessions and so on, months down the line. And so I think communication is one of the most important lessons we can take out of this. And not just communication in your own setting, communication elsewhere, as we are doing now, learning, compiling, maximizing, optimizing. And if you do that, and you, in fact, do things in a simple fashion, I think, I think you, in fact, improve outcomes. And it's feasible. There's that good saying that gets thrown out uh, again and again, uh, nothing is impossible. And when we all look at what we face, just turn the words around. Impossible is nothing. And so I think if we take some of those sort of issues out, um, you can get through every day. Um, and it doesn't matter what the weather is in your scenario. Just take your own sunshine with. And uh, <laughs> you, will, you will warm people. So, you know, I think those, those are some of the things that we try to do and instill in, in our setting. 
And um, I've no doubt that um, th there were some sev there were several positive spin-offs. Marvin, I think uh, one other pun I've heard from Impossible is I am possible. That title of a book that one of the doctors and our senior management doctors uh, wrote from a hospital about his own experience. But it, I think I, I completely agree with what Mervyn's saying about how things have changed. And as I mentioned earlier, the coordination communication aspect, I mean, everybody really stepped up to the plate. Now, the, the challenge, I think, is that COVID isn't over. Now, we're in a marathon, and it's not a sprint. And mm -hmm. sustaining this is going to be the challenge, I think. And keeping everybody masked up in the community and continuing the hand hygiene that Flavia mentioned, I mean, these things have to continue. So the basic principles of public health uh, can't be ignored. And I think that just has to persist. And because the health systems can only handle so much until we get you know, whatever future therapy comes up for COVID, uh, the other aspect of this whole story was, uh, so I do remote intensive care for the U.S. also from India, and I had the benefit of learning from looking at what's happening out there. So in March, I was seeing what was happening all over the U.S., and I was like panicking and telling the doctors in my country, you know, we need to prepare because uh, it's going to come to us. So that I had a huge advantage that way where I could actually see that. And at some level, I think at least internally, it helped me foresee what might come through. I know in the U.S. with the second wave, I'm seeing ICUs with two patients in uh, one ICU room. I had never seen that before in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, it's working. They actually have signs up saying hallway patient and internal patient, and it's going on. But, but I think if a third wave hits the rest of the world, we may end up with more crunches, and we may have to learn from each other. And Perhaps we also need better ways of uh, managing patients who are not on the ventilator and keeping them out of the hospital as long as possible. Uh, so we may end up needing to do things of that sort. Yeah, I, I think that this uh, we are now in a moment in Brazil, at least in uh, the majority of Brazil, that's very challenging, which is uh, a plateau, which is going to be our new normal for a while, I hope. Uh, we are not on the second wave. I hope we will not have a second wave. But now what we think is that we have the rebound of the financial issues raised during the pandemic. All the effort that has been done during the pandemic in the public system, all the money that was spent to save those, these lives, now we are, we are getting this back. For instance, in our hospital, uh, we did everything. We had, a, we had not enough money, let's say. But now, now we are in the worst crisis that I have seen for the last 20 years because there is no money. And uh, I don't think that we are gonna have money to face a second wave. And this is the price that we are paying now. So during the pandemic, we have shortage of resources, at least in Sao Paulo, not because we lack money, but the industry could not sell us. And now we don't have money to buy it. So it's, uh, and for this, we need preparedness as well. For instance, I know that in two days, I will run out of uh, meropenem. During the pandemic, we ran out of uh, bicarbonate. We ran out of heparin. Today, uh, I, was, uh, I was communicated that we, will, we are run out of cephalosporin. So these things that happened during the pandemic because nobody could sell us things, now are happening 
because we don't have money to buy. So it's, it's, it's quite worth now, I would say. Not worth, but it's uh, as worth as it's worth uh, during the pandemic. At least in our hospital, which is a reference hospital. So I believe that most of the public hospitals in Brazil are facing the same problem because the money from the government to the public hospital has been cut off because COVID is down. Mm-hmm. So oh. that is the main issue now. So oh. all the, the extra money that we have during the pandemic, now it's, it's, uh, it's off. We have to deal with all this with our regular money. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a tremendous reality, Flavia. Um, and in Brazil, it has to be said, has had a very good economy in the last couple of decades. Um, how how guys in India and South Africa? How is there a similar circumstance for you guys? Very similar. Um, every day uh, you've got to get out there and make sure. And that's why, in fact, preparation isn't something you do before. It's an ongoing process. <laughs> it has to yeah. happen every single day. And you have to keep your finger on the tap all the time and keep engaging. What we were very fortunate and, and had recognized is that we engaged in um, uh, together with a number of social responsibility partners and outside of governmental funding, South Africa effectively is in a recession as COVID began. And so our economy is absolutely destroyed. In fact, um, the recommend, the suggestions are it may take 10, 20 or even more years to get back to where we were. Uh, that, that's the reality. We're looking currently at more than uh, 40% of people who are unemployed, employable people we're talking about. So it, it's actually been absolutely devastating um, but big corporates and others really have come to the fore and themselves have set up groups to manage. So you have government funding, you have independent funding, which is very well controlled. So that is how, for example, we sourced ventilators. It is how we, in fact, expanded our ICU. We then went to the authorities afterwards and said, this is what we're going to do. The same models were, in fact, managed and utilized in other geographic areas in the country. So, you know, everyone has really gone beyond the, the nth degree, as has happened everywhere in the world, but it's, it's been a magnificent issue. And I think South Africa, although we came in with a lockdown perhaps a little later than we should have, most people, in fact, have been really excellent. The masking, the social distancing, the recognition, even in areas where there isn't water, water tankers are there. Um, and we soon realized in our own setting when healthcare workers were becoming infected, you know, it wasn't necessarily always the, the PPE, which is often blamed. It was because they were taking breaks and everyone is sitting next to each other in a tea room without windows. <laughs> and that was one of the biggest lessons that I think resource limited countries, we don't have negative pressure facilities. We don't have extractives. But if you open the windows... As soon as you open the windows, you're going to get six to 12 exchanges per hour. It's better than most extractors, costly ones you can buy. So we did that. Um, and just one other thing before it jumps out of my mind to share that I think was very useful that we learned. Um, in fact, it, it was earlier on when um, Sai mentioned, uh, you know, wake proning and so on, which is in every single guideline. 
we in fact um, didn't get the people necessarily to, to turn onto their tummies. What's wrong with sitting up or standing? In fact, gravitation, you're going to actually get better expansion of your lungs if you think of the anatomy. And so we did that and the results were quite remarkable. Set the patient up in a chair. It's much easier than getting them turned onto their tummy, you know, or um, in those that can feasibly do it or stand. And so those were some of the remarkable issues that almost certainly allowed us to avoid the necessity for, you know, for more invasive uh, ventilation and um, people in fact survived. In fact, the first second patient that we had in the ICU was actually an American who was visiting in uh, South Africa um, who presented to us with sat saturations of about uh, 50%. And um, uh, in, in my unit, we only had six, and we, we, we started uh, with high-flow um, uh, nasal oxygen quite early on and uh, we amongst the first people to just use a mask over the interface so we weren't too worried about potential aerosolization there. And I think most people are utilizing that, but we didn't have that available. We used a rebreathing poly mask because uh, all the, the data out in New York and so on was 88% mortalities. And we got him to stand and sit with the rebreathing poly mask. And eventually he got better. He also had acute kidney injury and we sorted that out and uh, he left the unit. Um, uh, you know, we, as I mentioned earlier on, he got his steroids early up front um, as well. And um, so these were some of the elements that we, you know, uh, learned and, you know, with a lot of enthusiasm in the context and a lot of time and perhaps an important lesson in a resource limited webinar is being poor doesn't mean poor care. And if that's the only message that comes out of this webinar, perhaps it's the most relevant one. You know, um, excellent clinical acumen still has a, has a great role and um, early intervention and, and a really good care uh, in a simple fashion can make a big difference. Of course, it's not quite as simple as that in, the, in, the, in always in the real world. But I think those are some of the real issues. But getting back to your entity, yes, we certainly face massive financial challenges moving forward. Um, uh, you know, and it's going to be with us probably for decades. So I think in India, it's fairly similar, but I think we have the benefit of having a lot of diversity in terms of resources. I know we're running short of time, so I'll be very brief. So India has been lucky in terms of having a fairly good technological basis. So there's the industry. So there is some element of uh, a, a resource that is available for the economy. But at the same time, there is definitely challenges for people whose jobs are gone, like the hospitality industry, the airline industry. I mean, all of that is down, but things are slowly coming back. But I've also realized that there's a lot of room for innovation. And just as Mervyn mentioned, my uh, favorite quotation is, in critical care, it is critical to care. Mm -hmm. And you know, unless you, you know, continue to express compassion for you know, families who can't see each other for days on end, sometimes even when they die, I mean, those are the things we never imagined would be something we would face in 2020. And it's our reality now. But from that standpoint, I think uh, India has done a very good job at trying to balance the economic necessity with the reality of managing a pandemic. The challenges are not over, but, uh, you know, CHEST, for example, is a global organization and we're doing stuff like this and people have tuned up. I know some colleagues of mine from India are actually awake and watching this right now. And, you know, people are interested in figuring out a fix 
and the world has come together in figuring out a way to take care of this. And this is a blueprint for every other disease out there. And I think, you know, in the face of uh, adversity, we will find a solution for many other things. And I'm uh, very glad, Steve, for inviting me and Alice for really listening to these wonderful people from around the world with, you know, wonderful experiences. This has indeed been amazing. This hour went by way too fast for my taste. So I really want to thank all of you for joining us today. And Flavia, if I could ask you to um, send us all home or back to bed in Sai's case and his colleague's case, um, one take-home point that you would like resource-rich institutions to take from what you saw in Brazil and one thing that changed in your team that you want to stay past the pandemic. Thank you, everybody, and stay safe. I think that uh, we need to work as a team. This was we learned with the pandemic the most important message, improve communications in our team, communicate with the other sections of the, the, the hospital, and uh, 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 ever, always, give feedback to the team. Let them know what they are doing. Let them know how great they are and how we took care of these patients so nicely, doing the best that we can with uh, less resources. But we did it. We managed it. We are managing. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic message, Flavia. Thank you. And I see Mervyn nodding his head and Cy nodding his head. And I, I think they agree with you on that take home. Um, we could keep talking for another hour, I know. And, and I'm so sorry to everyone who's watching, but, but we have a hard stop here and and there's another chest webinar coming up next and so we're going to have to leave i want to say thank you so much to flavia mervin and sai um you are some uh, we knew this already but you are giants of critical care medicine in in the global sense and we so appreciate you being with us thank you gracious thanks Thank you all, and oh. uh, it's w- wonderful to be here this evening. Thank you. And with that, Dom, I believe you can take us out. Everyone have a great day. Tell your friends to watch this when it's uh, recorded and posted on the CHEST website. <laughs>